Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. The past year has been, in a word, unprecedented. What can history teach us about living through COVID-19? In this episode, Professor Gina Bucola will join us to talk about three Roosevelt University courses that investigate how diseases shaped history. Dr. Bucola is a professor of English and chair of the Humanities Department at Roosevelt University. Through the Shakespeare Project of Chicago, she adapted a new devastating eyewitness account of the 1603 plague. She and three actors will perform News from Gravesand, The Wonderful Year, live on Zoom next week. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation about how the humanities can help us understand our current crisis. Well, to get us started, Professor Bucola, tell us about your background and your work with the Shakespeare Project. Sure. So I started my work with the Shakespeare Project as a super fan and a nerd. I had gone to see them perform several times at the Newberry Library, which I'll talk more about in a little bit in this podcast conversation. So they perform there. They are an interesting theater company. So they perform theatrical readings as they call them. So they're on book, but they use professional actors and they rehearse each of their performances. And so I had gone to see them perform some non-Shakespearean plays from the Shakespearean era that are not staged very often, which were fantastic and really great to see, you know, performed rather than just reading them in a book since they are plays after all. And so I approached the artistic director, Peter Garino, and the then associate artistic director, Barbara Zahora, who teaches in the College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt now. Um, She did not at the time. This was a a while ago. And I said, hey, do you know about the work of Thomas Middleton? I think you would like it. You should do some of that, too. And so they looked into it, and Peter liked what he saw. And he said, how about, since you suggested this, you come be the dramaturg for these plays by Thomas Middleton? And I said, sure, love to. So I started with them in 2015 on a production of The Revengers Tragedy, serving as the dramaturg, which was a huge amount of fun. And that has developed. I've now served as a dramaturg for a couple of other plays that they have done by Middleton and one that's a collaboration between Middleton and Thomas Decker called The Roaring Girl. And that's how it all began. Okay. Well, you know, what I was expecting you to say is to introduce yourself as one of nations and perhaps the globe's most famous Shakespearean experts. And yet you jumped into their project. That's fine. And uh, we will get to that. But please give us some context for the world of the plague pamphlets. How did it affect Londoners in 1603? And how is it similar or different from our circumstances today? Well, it was actually amazingly similar to our circumstances today because 1603 was a big year in London. 
Um, so in addition to the fact that it was a plague year, it was also the year that Queen Elizabeth died. So the person who had been queen for 45 years, including the entire lifetimes of many Londoners and people in England, for that matter, at that point, including the man from Stratford, Shakespeare. Um, he was born after Elizabeth took the throne. So his whole life up to that point had been lived under her rule. That had to have been a source of tremendous upheaval, particularly when she did not marry and had no children. And when you have a lineally descended monarchy, that's a worrisome reality. You know, To not know who is going to succeed her on the throne was alarming. So... The kinds of political upheaval that we're seeing now were happening then in different ways and for different reasons, of course. But there were factions at court. There were people who were jockeying for position, just as we have seen in our own country recently. And then they were dealing with this pandemic. And so one of the things that is interesting to me in looking back in order to look at our own current context is how much we have, in fact, learned and progressed since, you know, 400 plus years ago. So in 1603, the plague killed one sixth of the population of London. And, you know, if you think about this, uh, you and I were just talking the other day, Ali, about you living in a high rise building in downtown Chicago. And if you think about, you know, standing in your lobby and just counting off every sixth person coming in and out of your building to die, and then extrapolate that out over the entire city, that is a shocking and colossal amount of loss of life. And that's not in any way to minimize the loss of life that we're experiencing now, which is equally horrifying and should not be occurring. If we had been more careful, it wouldn't be occurring. But I think that it's important to think about these things in context and to think that we have made progress in terms of our understanding of pandemics and how to properly handle them since 1603 And we are doing a better job than that. And I think that in the future, we'll do even better in events such as this happens again. Well, thank goodness. And we are grateful to all the scientists and the science of vaccines so that we can get vaccinated and, you know, really look at this pandemic from a rearview mirror, you know, shortly, hopefully. Now, you know, you as a professor of English are expert in written words. So give us some context in terms of why you decided to do this, uh, these pamphlets, and bring them to life through performance instead of written word. Absolutely. So Peter Garino, the artistic director of the Shakespeare Project, approached me in this case because he read a book review of um, some works uh, that relate to Thomas Middleton, including the collected works of Thomas Middleton that Oxford University Press published, and then also uh, Middleton in Context, which is a sort of response to that work. And he read about the fact that there were these plague pamphlets, and he approached me and said, hey, do you know anything about these? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. (laughs) Um, And so we collaborated together to prepare a text for performance And in part, we're sort of testing a hypothesis that is in the article that he read. And that is that people who were writing for this collection, Middleton in Context, like Heather Hirschfield and Laurie McGuire and Emma Smith, have argued that even when writing a pamphlet like this that's topical and is intended for quick sale and consumption in London in the 17th century, 
Middleton and the person he collaborated with, Thomas Decker, are thinking through a theatrical lens. So they're thinking of the world as a stage and of the situations that people are experiencing as inherently theatrical, even if they're describing them in real world terms, which they certainly are. Both of them can be kind of sarcastic and witty, but they are also very visceral and real about the experiences that people have. So it's an interesting combination of, I mean, there's there's some moments of humor, but there's also certainly moments that are really, you know, tugging at the heartstrings when you see these pamphlets. Well, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Now, besides being a you know, global expert on Shakespeare, on your free time, you also are chair of the humanities department <laughs> and manage lots of faculty and a lot of students. And we're now several classes this spring will focus on the pandemic. So I hope to talk uh, about each of the courses in a second, but why did professors want to adjust their classes to talk about our current crisis from your perspective? Well, this is a great question. So the faculty in humanities are an incredibly innovative group of people. We are always having new courses introduced every semester. So people certainly play to their strengths as researchers and scholars, and it's not as if they're not revisiting material and content you know, from semester to semester, but they do it always through a new lens. And they're always thinking about ways to connect the things that we are studying to the real world experiences of our students and the world that they are going to need to navigate as professionals when they graduate. And so that's really where this came from, this impulse this time, is a very similar impulse to the one that they've had in the past of wanting to find ways to connect the things that students are studying in their classrooms to their lived experiences. Yeah. And, you know, having been in the classroom for at least two decades myself, every time the professors do that, it really brings to life the daily life of the students and connects it to the literature and the work of famous authors, no matter when it was uh, written. Now, one of the courses is Professor Celeste Chamberlain's class on epidemics and urban culture. What can students learn by studying the impact of other diseases throughout history, like AIDS, smallpox, and the plague in this course? Well, if you are not able to take a class at Roosevelt this semester or take this specific class at Roosevelt, do yourself a favor and find Celeste Chamberlain on Facebook (laughs) and follow her. Um, So Professor Chamberlain was on research leave in March of 2020 when the pandemic shut everything down including the Newberry Library, where she was doing a lot of research. And so because she is ever the enterprising scholar, as all of our faculty are, she immediately pivoted when she was no longer able to do her research in place at the Newberry to writing these incredible posts on Facebook that were the histories of other pandemics. These were whip smart and witty, which I'm sure her class will be this semester as well. And the class is really going to kind of, I think, take a very similar trajectory. And as we were talking about a few minutes ago, I think that one of the reasons that it's important to think about the place of these pandemics, particularly in urban cultures, is because of course, urban environments are one of the places where they spread the most easily. And so I think the more that we can learn in looking back at the way that previous pandemics have been managed 
in urban contexts, the better equipped we are to deal with similar kinds of challenges when they come forward in the future. And that's important whether you're a historian or you're studying biology. You know, these are important things to keep in mind. No, I mean, these are lessons of history that our students need to understand as we go forward. Now, another history course taking a slightly different approach is Professor Sandra Frink's experiential class called Documenting COVID. Now, how will students help preserve our current moment through this class? Yeah, so Sandra is going to guide her students in learning the practices of conducting an oral history, and then will assist them in identifying communities that they wish to study. So this might be the Roosevelt community, or it might be some other community in the Chicago area that they're a part of, or given the fact that we're still remote for spring 2021 in an abundance of caution to keep everyone safe and healthy, they might be working in a completely different context and you know studying there. So we have um, the editor of our humanities newsletter, which you read over the break, Ali, is in Norway in place right, right now, <laughs> studying remotely at Roosevelt and doing all kinds of great work for us still too. So, you know, we could get some really fascinating community stories out of this class. And they're going to put the oral histories that they gather together into formal narratives that will then be collected. And there are published models for this, like the 9-11 book, for example, The Only Plane in the Sky, it's called the novel World War Z. And so we also have precedents in other courses that we've offered, like in Women's and Gender Studies, Professor Leslie Bloom whom Sandra you know, works with very closely, has also conducted oral histories in her courses in the past as well. And I know Sandra intends to model some of her techniques on the work that Leslie has done with students also. So I think by the end of the semester, we'll have a really amazing compendium of chronicles of this experience that we've all had. And what's fascinating about that, of course, is not only they are recording history, but they're also learning about research you know, and research methods. Now, the third class regarding the pandemic is Professor Stuart Warner's, which explores pandemic philosophers and poets. So what universal themes or thinkers will those students study in his class? Yeah, so Professor Warner's class is really going to focus on the theme of contagion and the fact that a lot of things can be contagious, not just illness, And this includes things like political ideas. So he's going to start the class with Zadie Smith's Intimations, which is an autobiographical piece that she wrote reflecting on the current pandemic. And one of the conversations that we've had in the department is the way in which these three courses talk to one another and possibilities that we will have for events on Zoom that can bring students from all three classes together to talk about the common experiences that they are having in their classes and, of course, in their lived experiences, too. So then Stuart's class is then going to turn to ancient Greece and Thucydides' history of the war between the Athenians and the Peloponnesians. And he's going to look specifically at three sections of it, which deal with the outbreak of both a plague that sweeps through Athens, but also at a political pestilence and conflict among people that really sort of is corrosive to their values and their culture as a people. 
and sort of compare, you know, those kinds of things. And then it's going to come up into the 20th and 21st centuries with Catherine Ann Porter's early 20th century novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. They're also going to, and that connects to the 1918 flu pandemic, I should say. And also simultaneously, the Great War, right? You know, World War I. Right. Um, so all of these political and social ills, as well as physical ills, are going to be topics of the course. And then I think they're also going to work with Mary Shelley's final novel, The Last Man. No, this is absolutely fascinating because, you know, sometimes on a daily life, all of us, and especially our young students, think that every situation that they're facing is unique and absolutely unique. And then once you put it in the historical context and how people have dealt with it when they didn't have the technology and they didn't have the vaccines and so forth, that is, uh, you know, education. I don't know what else you can call it, but educating our young men and women about the future and how they can put their daily life in the context uh, especially in the humanities. Now, how will the historical and social justice topics of these courses help students navigate their world today? I think you partially responded to that, but I want you to also specifically mention the social justice part. Of this. Absolutely. So, you know, Ali, you and I have had a lot of occasions to talk in the past about how important it is to both of us to be at an institution that not only has a social justice mission, but also has this grounding in a liberal arts education. Right. Because I think, for, I mean, you know, I'm biased. It's my own background. I went to a liberal arts university for undergraduate myself in Louisville, Kentucky, Bellarmine University. That reminds me in a lot of ways of Roosevelt. I feel very home at home here for that reason. But I think that it's, this is what prepares you to be a citizen in a democracy where you're called upon to be a critical thinker. And you are called upon to fulfill a very significant civic duty that people around the world have fought and died to acquire, and that is to participate in the electoral process. And this is, it's not just about choosing candidates, you know, for office, it's also about voting on matters, you know, amendments to the constitution, new legislation in the community and that you live in. And I think that we really work to prepare our students to be engaged and informed citizens of this country and the world at large. And then that also, of course, extends to their professional lives. So something that is a very important course that is always closed almost every semester is ethics in our department offered by philosophy. And this is a really vital thing for young people to acquire, is the opportunity to spend some time in college studying various ethical systems and approaches to the world, evaluating their own, and deciding and determining what their place in the world they're going to be joining as citizens and professional people will be. Um, and that's really where our social justice mission comes into play, right, is that we want to guarantee that we're sending people out into the world who are prepared to do the right thing and conduct themselves in a morally upright and ethical way. And the ethics class is closed because it's oversubscribed. It's not that we're not teaching yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, again, you just started this conversation, but the recent events, what has it shown you about the importance of humanities? You know, I know all of us within the universities really are reluctant to call anyone who graduates from any university as well-educated 
if they don't have a good grounding in the humanities. But give me your view on that. Yeah, so there have been some really interesting articles in higher ed press and then in the press at large, New York Times, Washington Post, about the ways in which some of the things that we have seen politically in the past year speak to the ways in which some parts of our education system are failing people by not teaching them to think critically about the information that they consume, whether it be on Facebook or in a newspaper or by turning on the television and watching you know, something that they see there. Because the onus should not be on the source of the information to provide the critical thinking. The people who are consuming it need to bring something to the table too. That's a, <laughs> a two-way street. Um, so even if you can't literally talk to the people on your television, it is fundamentally a dialogic relationship. And it's incumbent on us to think critically about what we hear and see and make our own determinations about it. And there's been far too much just acceptance, a blind acceptance of what people are told. And in some cases, absolutely no investigation of what the sources of those information are. And those are the kinds of skills that you learn in a higher education environment that includes the humanities and things like critical thinking skills. Um, So I think about a time one summer, many years ago now, I was teaching a course that was a writing focused course that required a lot of research. And I had a student at the end of the semester say to me in frustration, I can't even read my cereal box anymore without like, you know, analyzing it. And I said, good, uh, you know, good. My work here is done. Uh, you know. That's the point. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So I think that we all do need to have a responsibility to be more critical consumers of the information that we get and what the sources of it are and its validity rather than just blindly accepting what someone tells us because we've liked what they've said in the past or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, these days, uh, you know, how can you become a scientist and, you know, have a professional degree in any area of science really without knowing about the 1603 plague and how it played out and then the grounding in humanities that you're talking about. Now, uh, we're coming quickly to a close for our discussion. But on a personal note, tell us what brought you to Roosevelt University. You kind of mentioned that Bellarmine and Roosevelt similarity. But uh, can you expand on that a little bit, Gina? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I actually went to graduate school here in Chicago, just down the street from Roosevelt at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And because of the wonderful iShare system, I knew about Roosevelt really, truly, originally from the iShare library system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was doing some research, and because I'm a Shakespeare nerd, one of the things that popped up right away one time when I was doing research for my dissertation was some books that I was looking for that were at Roosevelt. So UIC didn't have them, but Roosevelt did. And I, I said, Roosevelt? You know, like, what is that place? And this is like, you know, 1996 or seven. And because I, I like to do, when I'm doing my research, even though the iShare library system will very delightfully deliver books to the institution where you are, I usually don't take advantage of that. And if there's a circuit of libraries, I can go visit myself on my bike. <laughs> I do. I call it my hunter-gatherer day where I go around and get you know all the various things I have found online. And so I did that. I rode my bike over from my apartment by UIC to Roosevelt and rode the elevator up. And, you know, everyone who visits Roosevelt for the first time has had this experience. 
and the elevator doors open and I'm like, what is this magical place? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the library in this beautiful building overlooking Lake Michigan. And so I spent some time that day, not only getting the materials I had come to collect, but also finding out about the place. And so it turns out that I was co-teaching a course at the time in women's and gender studies at UIC with someone named Mary Todd, who has since gone on to a position with a National Honor Society. But she was good friends with Lynn Weiner. And so she knew a lot about Roosevelt. And and she's also a historian by training. And so she gave me the lowdown on Roosevelt. And I said, that is a place for me. And then almost like magic, when you know how challenging it is to get a job in higher education, there was a job at Roosevelt's and it was actually a really incredible lightning strike because the job came available when I was still finishing my dissertation and my committee said, no, you cannot apply for that. You need to finish your dissertation (laughs) first. And then for whatever reason, it didn't work out that first time. And so it ran a second time when I was ready to apply. And I did. And the rest is history. That is awesome. What a great story. Now, uh, I'm going to surprise you. As of my last question, tell us something no one knows about you. And we'll keep it a secret, of course. We won't put it out there at all, except for the podcast, of course. Um, well, <laughs> there might be a few people who know this, but something that I don't think a lot of people would know about me is that I have actually jumped out of an airplane for fun before. With a parachute, I hope. Yes, or, with a parachute. <laughs> or, yes. or a bungee cord or something. Yes. yes. So as I was finishing my dissertation, I went a few times to skydive Chicago and jumped out of airplanes. And it was really fun. I have to tell you, it was a good time. Uh-huh. So I can see the headlines. Uh, Shakespeare expert jumps out of the plane. Got it. Yes. Well, I haven't done it recently. It's been quite a while, but I have done it. (laughs) Right. Well, it's absolutely been a pleasure talking to you, Gina. And also, I'm really grateful for the great work that you do in your department with your colleagues. And of course, nationally in your research. Thanks, Ali. Always a pleasure. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>